Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. All of you did your homework and you wrote down any questions or comments? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, so I'm just going to read a portion of it, really, just the beginning of it. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, and then we'll meditate with holding in mind what I'm first going to talk about, the four foundations of mindfulness. And so, you know, every time we go through the truth of happiness, um, the actual structure is a little bit different from class to class. Um, sometimes I substitute a completely different sutta than I'm referencing in the truth of happiness book. Um and then make the connection there just to kind of broaden it. This time through, I really feel like I want to um, put a directed focus on just the basics that we're teaching, because that's what the book was meant to be, um, and to develop a broad foundation of what the Dhamma is about. So then the rest of our classes, we now have a context for these um, other suttas, and you'll know how they apply. Uh, so, again, just another way of deepening our practice. Uh, and in our discussion, I'll hear if it's working well or not. Uh, so I'm going to read that in introduction first and talk a little bit about it as soon as my iPad behaves. And this is from what you read uh, this past week. You know, um, Adam, did you get the book in time to read this? Uh, I just got the book uh, yesterday. Okay. All right. So when you, after class, maybe, or unless it's too late um, tomorrow, just read the rest of the chapter because it is important. That's chapter two? Yep. We're week two in the book. Okay. Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Okay. So this is week two, and this is just my words here. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the primary sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Buddha teaches the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And a practice, without, a practice of mindfulness without this foundation can often lead to confusion and distraction on the path of liberation and freedom. And that path is liberation and freedom from ignorance of four noble truths. And let me emphasize that by saying period. That, that is all that the Buddha wanted us to develop so that we can develop an, an end of ignorance of four noble truths. So much of modern Buddhism has adapted and I would say become corrupted by the um, uh, I can't think of the right word by placing too much emphasis on general mindfulness without knowing what how the Buddha taught mindfulness in the four foundations of mindfulness so often modern mindfulness is taught to just be mindful of anything that's occurring in fact even in um, long sashims that were supposed to be focused on nothingness, that nothingness would resolve in the meditator being mindful of nothing in their meditation, which is not being mindful of your breath. It's being mindful of nothingness, or, or as that might translate to emptiness. That's the greatest presentation or the broadest presentation of modern mindfulness. Or it can be anything, that whatever you're doing, be mindful of what you're doing. And that's your Buddhist practice. So one of the foremost, not knocking this person, but just to make reference, one of the foremost modern Buddhist teachers, um, name doesn't need to be referenced, most of his practice 
was focused on mindfulness of walking. And that was his great practice, that whenever you're walking, you should be mindful of it. And he taught a practice of, of this excruciatingly slow walk where you might take two or three seconds between a walk and be mindful of each step. And millions of people all over the globe, including me, try to adopt this practice as their Buddhist practice. And it doesn't lead to anything of any benefit, um, that, at least that I could find. Uh, many millions of followers continue to do this. And other aspects of mindfulness, um, there was a famous book that came out a few years ago. I can only reference it because it's out there, um, which taught, uh, the title of the book made reference to, if you're doing the dishes, be mindful of doing the dishes. And that was presented as a practice. Or if you're brushing your teeth, be brushing, be mindful of that. That should be an aspect and is an aspect of concentration. But it's not an aspect of Dhamma practice, meaning, okay, I'm going to go wash the dishes and I'm going to be focused only on washing the dishes and not thinking about something else. The dog has to go out or where I'm going at work together. That's a good thing to do when you're washing the dishes, but it's not Dhamma practice. That's not the type of mindfulness that we're talking about. And I'm spending a little bit of time and a lot of commentary on this to make the point and to encourage you to make the separation from what you practice on your cushion to deepen concentration and then how to apply that concentration to each and every activity, such as washing the dishes or thinking about your boss or walking a dog or anything else, even taking a walk out in nature, how to apply that concentration to what you're doing, which means integrating the eightfold path and ending in right view that we talked about just beginning of the, the previous structured study to bring that into each and every uh, moment of your life. Does anybody have any questions about this long diatribe? Everybody follow me because that's important. Okay. Thank you for your feedback. I'm just going to read that again. A practice of mindfulness without this foundation can often lead to confusion and distraction on the path of liberation and freedom. That's why the Buddha taught jhana meditation as the um, antidote to our uh, inclination towards um, mindless mindfulness, if you will, which is what another practice without this is. Right mindfulness is the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path. It is part of a practice of transcending stress and unhappiness rather than simply re reducing or managing stress. So most of that, in fact, the um, John Kabat-Zinn became famous and deservedly so for his practice of, now I forget the name, mindfulness-based stress reduction. Millions of people all over the globe have, great, have gained great benefit from mindfulness-based stress reduction and the many therapists that teach it. It's just important to understand that that is not the same mindfulness that the Buddha taught. And it doesn't lead to the same understanding or the same result, which is understanding stress rather than using your time in Dhamma practice to manage stress. Because ultimately what you're doing when you think you're managing stress is just emphasizing something that you should just be understanding rather than manipulating. Again, everybody following me there? So this is one of the great breakthroughs of understanding that the Buddha realized 2,600 years ago, that we're not here to manage stress. We're not here to, to avoid stress. We're simply here to understand it. The first noble truth is there is dukkha. There is stress. The Buddha didn't say, and here's a way of managing it. He taught that understanding and developing right view, profound right view, was understanding the first noble truth. And we developed that through the fourth noble truth of the Eightfold Path. This is the, the tight little package that 
the Dhamma is presented at. I remember years and years ago, I was a little bit more um, superfluous in how I taught. And I used to mention that when I see the Four Noble Truths, I see it as this beautiful little, um, uh, now I can forget the reference, a beautiful little box of gems that we can open up and we look into it and everything we need to know is in there. And that's the Four Noble Truths. And that's really the way to see it, whether you want to hold on to that metaphor or not, I don't know. But just to understand what we're practicing, why we're developing concentration is to develop understanding of Four Noble Truths and no other reason. And by keeping our, our focus practice on that, we can understand and integrate the Eightfold Path as is, as is appropriate. Mindfulness used to manage the stress of modern life in the phenomenal world can and does bring great benefit to human health. I mentioned that, mindfulness-based stress reduction. Mindfulness with the intention to manage or reduce stress does not have the same intention or right intention or right resolve as what the Buddha taught. Holding in mind right intention determines the, the ensuing result of any action or activity, meaning holding in mind whatever I want to do. I cannot get up, get off my cushion and make it to, to the door unless I first develop the intention to do so. But that's everything in our life is based on what is my intention. So my intention can be, I want to get the hell out of here as fast as I can because I hated this class. Or my intention is to remain calm no matter what my impression is and walk out of here with grace and dignity focused on just where I am in this moment. Everybody following me? So again, I'm not teaching to be mindfulness of what is occurring in, a, in an evaluative state. That's past the second and third um, jhana, isn't it? So I'm really talking about living in that third foundation of, of dhamma, of jhana, which has abandoned the need for evaluation and judgment and is simply resting with what is. We're taking our, our meditation practice, our jhana practice off our cushion and applying it through right intention and right view in this present moment. Excuse me. So you may not quite be making all the connections that I'm talking about, but that was what our previous structured study was about. And this is what ongoing practice is about. It's, it's finite, finding the nuanced connection between that. So that's why I'm referencing this. And we get more into right, right view, right intention, et cetera, um, in week four, in two more classes. The four foundations of mindfulness is taught to bring mindfulness of what is occurring during jhana meditation first. Mindfulness is the quality of mind that supports developing lasting peace and happiness by integrating the entire Eightfold Path through the concentration developed in jhana practice. Practicing mindfulness within the framework of the Four Noble Truths is straightforward, accessible, easily understood in practice. These four foundations of mindfulness are being mindful of the breath and the body. We do that at the beginning of every jhana practice, every jhana session, and that's related in the guided meditations as well. The second foundation of mindfulness is being mindful of feelings arising from the sixth sense base, our five physical senses, and the sixth sense of our ongoing consciousness. Consciousness with a small c, not cosmic consciousness or some kind of unity consciousness. That's all a myth and a distraction as it relates to the Dhamma. What we're talking about is ongoing consciousness, of ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths until we start integrating the Eightfold Path. The third foundation of mindfulness is being mindful of thoughts arising from the sixth sense base. So we all do this in meditation. 
we come back from our busy day, busy day or begin our morning meditation by finding a secluded spot, a quiet spot, closing our eyes and taking a breath. And almost immediately, we're going to be distracted or notice a feeling or a thought or a thought attached to a feeling, an emotion, that's a thought attached to a feeling, and that is the distraction of our thoughts. And so jhana meditation is recognizing that. So we're now going from the first jhana to the second jhana by recognizing that I'm caught up in that. I direct my thoughts away from the feeling of the thought or the thought attached to a feeling back to my breath. That's jhana meditation. That's a successful practice, and it interrupts ongoing ignorant thoughts that are prone to tackle to tack one thought to the previous thought. That's how awakening occurs in that instant of, of directed thought back to mindfulness of the breath. And for many of us, most of us, that mindfulness of the breath will only last for a breath or two or three. And sometimes we might spend five minutes lost in thought and remember to come back to our breath. That five minutes doesn't matter. What's important is you came back to your breath. That interrupted ongoing thoughts rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. It interrupted ongoing ignorant consciousness. Again, everybody follow? So the qualitative judgment of every meditation you do, every jhana meditation, shouldn't be how you feel afterwards. It's great if you feel relaxed and calm. Or to judge yourself that, well, I can only be mindful of my breath for, for six seconds. That's the wrong way to look at it, too. What you should do is recognize when you're mindful of your breath, period. And if you can do that, you're practicing jhana, and, and it will only deepen and expand. Does anybody have any questions on that point? Laura, please. Uh, this is a little bit of a silly question, but I thought about it after I meditated. What's the, what would you say is the kind of distinction between what we do here, mindfulness of the breath, and then simultaneously mindfulness of the passing away of feelings and thoughts versus just almost being too hyper fixated on your breath? Like, I mean, sometimes I almost find myself doing that because I'm like I don't want to lose the concentration but then I'm like no this is bridging into like a state of like hyper awareness or something well I, I'm, I'm so glad really I'm so glad you brought this up and it shows that you're deeply involved in your meditation and looking for insight because that could be and for many people it is a place where they start losing the jhana because the overemphasis is okay I gotta be on my breath and if I'm not on my breath I'm doing something wrong and again, I'm trying to make that point, and thank you for allowing me to make it deeper, that it is at that point that you feel almost compelled back to your breath because you think you're doing something wrong or you're not, at least you're not practicing rightly. That's still the second level of jhana. It's okay. But as you continue to deepen that, that's directed thought. Okay, I've lost my thought. I've lost my mindfulness of the breath. Let me direct my thought back to my, back to my breath because I realize I'm not. That's recognizing the second level of, of meditation. So it's still part of jhana practice. And the deepening aspect of your jhana practice is getting past that point of evaluation and directed thought. And when you're doing that, you've now, just to use the expression, fell into, or maybe you could say raised yourself up into the third level of jhana, which itself is also nuanced and fluid, isn't it? Yeah. And so from that, from that, second to third level, and then the third to fourth level, again, we talked about this last week as well, is also a, never, a, a deepening nuance of that 
now not so much of a compulsiveness back towards the breath, but simply a natural gentleness back to, okay, I've, I've, I realize that I've lost my breath and it's simply coming back to it without any real directed thought or evaluation. So the connection of directed thought and evaluation is really important because it's both of those. You could almost say that directed thought is rooted in evaluation, judging my practice. And now you're not. Now you're just simply be mindful of your breath. When you lose it, you come back. When you lose it, you come back. All of that, all four stages of jhana, all four foundations of, jhana, of mindfulness are what we're talking about. And all of it is jhana practice. So you talked about and you brought up probably the most significant aspect and where some of us can lose practice because we get caught up in that compulsiveness and say, it's just too damn hard. I can't keep going back to this. Recognizing the deepening jhana gets you past that. And then, you're, then your practice becomes more self-directed self and self-encouraged because you're seeing the benefits, which is why Siddhartha taught all of this in this way, why we taught, taught, teach it in this way. Does that help? Oh, yeah. yeah. It helped everyone, I think, with that question. Does everybody follow this again? This is really a nuanced and kind of a fine-tuned thing that I talk about often, but maybe not quite in this context or quite as with as much emphasis. Everybody's good? Yeah, I think David? your use of the term fluid is really what you start experiencing when you're not compulsive to really so focused on you know, return to breath. Yes. And, and doing something wrong versus the fluid nature of how your mind is working. You're just aware yeah. of it. And it's just, that's Fluid to me now means like that, that gentleness. Yeah. You know, that fluid is not forced. Fluid yeah, is just that's right. And that's gentle. Thank you so again. Thank you so much for that. He's getting good. Fluidity is the right. Yeah, she is getting good She's, at this. So fluid, fluid does refer to that gentleness, right? We're just flowing yeah. down a river. We're not. There's no effort in flowing. Right. We're going with the flow. Barry Sears wrote a couple of great books on being in the flow. Reference doesn't really matter, um, and it also relates to gentleness, which relates to an understanding of impermanence. And as you can drop through these deeper levels of jhana, and recognize the fluidity, the impermanence, the gentleness of that, you're getting to what Kandana realized with his first teaching from the Buddha, post the Buddha's awakening. And Kandana said on that very first teaching in the Dhamma Chakravarti Sutta. What did he say that I lost it? All things that arise, All things that arise are subject to cessation. And the Buddha said, all conditioned things that arise are subject to cessation. And the Buddha said to Kandana, you are now Anakandana, meaning the one who understands. Understands what? Impermanence in relation to this ever deepening levels of jhana. And this is what we experience off our cushion now when we can do it in this moment and we realize I'm not distracted. I'm fully present with what's here, and I don't need this moment to be any different than it is because I understand. Understand what? Understand the stress that would arise by me, not, by me taking this moment personally. And now I don't have to do it because I understood my own thought, thoughts, my, the fluidity of my thoughts, and the lack of connection to my thoughts through this basic practice. Ram, you had a question? Um. I wanted to throw in another distinction that I've heard the Buddha make. Uh, and I'm not quite sure that it only applies to jhana or, or to practice in general. Is 
um, to understand the difference between the lesser pleasures and the greater pleasures. And uh, I noticed it the other day in my own meditation, which is fairly rare, uh, is that all of a sudden there was a period where <clears throat> instead of being <clears throat> distracted by, by the lesser pleasures of just distraction, um, the pleasure was just in breathing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that was, we taught that, that sutta on that. I can't remember what, if it was a Chapalata Sutta in the right. Just, anyway, we taught, taught a Sutta on that, where the Buddha teaches the, the, the greater pleasures and the greater practice is this one that is rooted in this mindfulness of breathing. And that we can be distracted by other things because we think they're beneficial when they're actually not. They're just, they're a pleasant distracting distraction. So um, I don't want to get too deep in it. So my modern Buddhist practice was focused mostly on that. And I was taking great pleasure in the various modern practices that I went was in, but that was mostly based in gaining a knowledge and um, a connection to the, to the group that I was practicing with and sort of an enamoration and, and an exaltation of the teacher as someone who might be teaching something that he knows it's unattainable to me, but I should just keep doing it. And most everyone in those different sanghas that I practiced was taught in that way. There was almost a hierarchy in what you could understand and that the ultimate understanding was almost not for human beings to experience. And that was always frustrating. Um, I think it had to be taught that way because nobody could really point to a resolution that the Buddha could, which is concentration and mindfulness yeah, and of the breath. Actually, he, is a great place. Yes, <laughs> and excuse me. And the greatest pleasure is a practical pleasure. It's one that we can actually integrate and sustain, which is the fourth foundation of mindfulness, and the fourth level of jhana, which is equanimity or a calm and peaceful mind. If I'm always striving for some level of mindfulness, I can't expect to have a, mind, a calm and peaceful mind. But if I can establish that calm and peaceful mind on a cushion, which is what jhana meditation is all about, then I'm practicing the Dhamma. And I can integrate the other eight factors of the Eightfold Path. So again, great comments, great questions. I'm going to keep going. So I just mentioned it. The, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is being mindful of the present quality of mind. And I'll, I'll get to that right here. The first foundation, first foundation of mindfulness, being mindful of the breath in the body, is the same mindfulness practice in jhana meditation. In jhana meditation, you begin to quiet your mind by putting aside thoughts as thoughts arise and becoming mindful of your breathing, preferably the sensation of breathing through the nose. You are using mindfulness of your breath in the body to cease being distracted by your thoughts and to begin to develop concentration. This is the essence of mindfulness. Mindfulness in a, in a distracted state is focused outside of your physical body or the results of my mindfulness. I'm, I'm going to be mindful of what's of this, what's going on, rather than having the inter, inner wherewithal to simply be well concentrated. You must understand where your mind is focused in order to free yourself of a mind distracted by clinging, craving, aversion, 
and discursive and compulsive thinking. We, another way to say what we just taught. In order to, to not be distracted, I have to develop a method of controlling my mind. Makes sense. The Buddha taught that method in jhana meditation, which is why I'm emphasizing to use the guided meditations and to do this twice a day if you're not already doing it, because that is Dhamma practice. And as far as I know, your teacher knows, it is the only way to establish the jhana, the concentration necessary, to then successfully integrate the other factors of the Eightfold Path. You could say it begins and ends with a successful jhana practice. And everything we do and everything I teach, we all teach during the year, is based on this foundation. Being mindful of what is occurring in relation to the Eightfold Path, through holding in mind your breath in the body, is the foundation of developing understanding of the Four Noble Truths. It cannot be done this without this. Being mindful of your breath in your body interrupts confused clinging, uh, clinging to conditioned thinking, and begins to quiet your mind with directed mindfulness. Using mindfulness now based in concentration and directed by the framework of the Eightfold Path. The second foundation of mindfulness, being mindful of feelings, arising and passing away, becomes possible once your mind has quieted enough to be able to hold in mind your breath in your body for just a few moments. We talked about that just previously. I'm not going to get into that, that whole thing. Continuing there, though, you may want to be, when you lose your breath, you may want to begin to blame yourself or others to justify the feeling, meaning I get distracted by um, a resurrection of some anger that I had this, this afternoon about my boss. And I start getting into, well, getting into the argument, my boss did this or anything else. It could be um, a distraction by somebody who cut me off and gave me the finger. It could be a distraction if I'm worried about if I can pay the mortgage, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about that. Whatever it is that you're holding in mind during meditation, let it go. Don't judge yourself for letting it go, though. It's simply an aspect of, of, of distraction, and it's an aspect of the fluidity of jhana meditation. We don't get stuck in that. We don't get stuck in looking for blame or to justify what we're feeling. We simply recognize it and come back to our breath. Put these thoughts aside. You may be drawn to analyze the feeling in some other way. You may ask where did the feeling come from? What circumstances took place to bring rise to this feeling? Uh, put these thoughts aside. A lot of modern insight practices taught to whatever thought arises, wallow in it, figure it out. Or if it's painful, feel the pain deeply. Go deep into the pain. Or if you have doubt arises, I remember, I remember these thoughts ringing in my head. Go deep into the doubt. Generate more doubt. The, thought, the Buddha teaches doubt simply as a hindrance to Dharma practice. If you get caught up in doubt, recognize it and let it go. So we don't manipulate or, or massage anything that we're holding in mind. We simply recognize it as a distraction away from concentration and put our mindfulness on our breath. With mindfulness, of, with mindfulness of your breath, let go of the feeling. Let go of the judgment attached to the emotion. Uh, skip that part. Mindfulness is a dispassionate, focused awareness on whatever is arising in the moment without being distracted by any judgments or discriminating thoughts on or question and off. Being mindful of feelings as feelings arise allows for the feeling to dissipate and allows a deeper tranquility to develop, again, flowing through the deeper, ever-deepening levels of jhana. So I'm going to skip a little bit. The third foundation of mindfulness is being mindful of your thinking process. With dispassionate mindfulness, notice how your thoughts 
evaluate impermanent qualities of your mind. Laura brought that up beautifully. We might find ourselves compulsively going back to our breath or simply recognizing the distraction and coming back gently and gracefully. That's what we're talking about. That's the third level of jhana. It relates to the third foundation of mindfulness. Notice if your mind is agitated or peaceful. Notice if your mind is constricted or spacious. Dispassionately notice your thoughts attached to the quality of your mind, often driven by feelings or thoughts attached to a feeling. This begins to develop insight into how your thoughts have created confusion and suffering. With insight, you can begin to incline your mind towards release from clinging conditioned mind. Excuse me. And so when I say that each moment holds the potential for each and every human being, especially for us, to recognize and abandon ignorance or clinging to ignorant thoughts and begin to incline our minds towards awakening or to calm each and every moment. What does that require? Again, it requires concentration so that we can be present for this moment and then bring the Eightfold Path into this moment. Remember that jhana meditation is primarily used to develop unwavering concentration. This entire process of noting feelings and thoughts is done with dispassionate mindfulness. Feelings arise that take your attention. Note that a feeling has your attention and return mindfulness to your breathing. I know I'm saying something over and over again to make the point. When you find that you are distracted by discriminating thoughts, Relating to the changing quality of your mind, simply note the quality of your mind and return your mindfulness to your breath. Mindfulness means holding in mind. Being mindful that thoughts are flowing develops your innate ability to control thoughts. Being mindful of thoughts is recognizing that thinking is taking place. We're thinking human beings. There's nothing wrong or bad or evil about our thoughts, no matter what those thoughts might have, but they can lead to great distraction and can even lead to great stress and great suffering when we lose control of our thinking, when we gain control of our thinking and then can integrate the eightfold path, then each moment becomes a moment of peace and calm because we're present for it. We're no longer contributing to our stress as we learned in, this, in the Salata Sutta and we're no longer contributing to the stress in the world. We're simply not capable of that. That's liberation, my friends. That's liberation and that alone. Unless concentration is developed, thoughts tend to feed themselves from conditioned thought patterns. This is discursive thinking and it is aspect of clinging of a clinging mind. Uh, you could say that a mind that is rooted in ignorance is naturally a clinging mind. It clings to its own thoughts to maintain its ignorance. That's how the, the ignorance game works in the world. Once it happens, it becomes clear that thoughts are an ongoing judgment of feelings and mental stress. Left unchecked, this can lead to ever intensifying emotions. In some people that can result in depression and anxiety or other mental disease. And I'm not saying to those that may be under the care of a therapist or even medicated that this will be the resolution and you can stop all of that. Please don't. But you can always talk to me about this and this will likely help. I can tell you there was a, I don't know if I talk about this much. There was once a time in my life, many, many years ago, that I was on a few different anti-depression anti medicines and anti-anxiety. I was diagnosed with social anxiety disorders. Take a look at me now. Just kidding. <laughs> But it got to the point where I, I felt like a zombie. And I still remember, this is many, many years ago, decades ago, I went back to the prescribing psychiatrist and I said, I cannot function in the world like this. The words were, I feel like a zombie. And her words to me, the last word she ever spoke was, if you try to take yourself off, take yourself off these medications, I will no longer be your doctor. And that was enough for me to say bye. 
And I probably shouldn't have done it, but I weaned myself off. It was a little bit difficult. I would say it was more difficult to do that than get off of alcohol. But I've done it, and I've never looked back. And I've never needed a drug to get through a day or think that I was too depressed. Now that I'm going to a different doctor almost every day, every one of them asks that question, even if they've asked it before. Do you have any difficulty getting out of bed in the morning? Do you look forward to your days? And I know why they're asking me. Because I think, and they expect that a person in my age with some of the debilities, they would probably be depressed. And I tell them to a person, my life is more meaningful now than it's ever been. And that's the truth. And it's not because of I'm fighting who I am. It's because I understand sickness, aging, and death. And I can say that with all honesty and sincerity. This is the most meaningful moment of my life because of the Dharma. Being mindful of thoughts without attachment, dispassionately remaining ardent and aware of thinking while maintaining mindfulness of the breath in the body will interrupt discursive thinking. Allowing your mind to quiet and allowing your mind to remain at peace. And again, this is the only thing that I have found that ever did this for me. As mindfulness and concentration develops, the afflictions caused by discursive thinking subside. By doing the practice, there's nothing else that we need to do. They subside on their own, and a mind of equanimity, a non-reactive mind, is maintained. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is being mindful of the present, but impermanent. We said that again, the fluidity of this moment and the fluidity of the quality of my mind. Is your present quality of mind inclined towards craving, clinging, and the continuation of stress? Is your present quality of mind inclined towards develop wisdom and release from craving and clinging? That's the, that's the question we should ask ourselves in each and every moment of our lives, and it points to the potential of this moment. Excuse me. Am I going too fast or giving you too much tonight? Please say so if I am. Jeff, did you raise your hand or is it just a... Okay. Thank you, Kevin. Slightly too fast. Okay. I'll listen to it, but I'm not going to hear to it. But thank you for letting me know. <laughs> As if Lorna was... Lorna would do it. Yeah. So slow down. I, 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 well, she said it with much more emphasis. Slow down. She would say it and she would throw things at the same time. So. <laughs> I'll slow down a little bit. We're almost done with my reading and then we're going to meditate. This is a broader type of mindfulness, this fourth foundation that I'm talking about, that notices the the quality of your mind that has developed from defining yourself through self-referential experiences driven by feelings and conditioned thinking. Notice when your mind seeks further sensual stimulation. Notice when your mind is distracted by ill will. Notice when your mind is dull or restless or anxious or distracted by uncertainty. And that touches on, again, what Laura brought up, that, that subtle nuanced part of having to direct, direct your mindfulness back to your breath without the judgment of having to do it, simply doing it. Remember that this is a dispassionate noticing that develops an understanding of your clinging conditioned mind. When any of these qualities are noticed, as no, qualities are, are noted, sorry, return your mindfulness to your breath. That's it, that simple practice. As concentration deepens and mindfulness broaden, broadens, notice the development of the qualities of right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, serenity, and equanimity. And all of those things are going to be taught in the next few classes. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is also known as the four frames of reference. You are developing mindfulness and con concentration in the context of four noble truths. 
What this means is that as you continue to develop concentration and mindfulness, you begin to integrate the Four Noble Truths more deeply into your life. You will begin to understand stress and how the quality of your mind is either inclined towards continuing stress or developing release from craving, clinging, and the cessation of stress. Um, that's as far as I'm going to go, and we're going to meditate now. We're going to have a little time, too, after our meditation, because I want to hear um, from each and every one of you how your practice is going from our last class to this, and how you see integrating these four foundations of mindfulness within the jhana practice that we're going to do right now. And again, I'll ask you once more, um, Adam, why are you holding up a piece of paper? I was just making sure I had the right paper in front of me. I can't see it, but I think it is. If it says John and meditation on it, that's it. More pills. I, I can't. It's too small on the screen. No, you, you know, and the the verbiage I'm using might be slightly different than you hear there because I do occasionally change this. But they're both they're both the same thing. All right. Thank you for bringing it up. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your breath and your body. Let that mindfulness unite your mind and your body. I'm going to give the full instructions. But again, recognize that this is a practice of deepening concentration, which supports the mindfulness necessary to develop a calm, peaceful, and awakened mind. And it's simply just for that. So anytime you find yourself distracted, gently, with great grace and understanding fluidity, direct your thought back to your breathing. And you'll notice the deepening levels of jhana by practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. This is the basic practice that the Buddha taught. So now is the time to meditate. Now is the time to set mindfulness on the breath in the body and do jhana. We are sensitive and conscious beings. The purpose of jhana meditation is to increase concentration by not being distracted by the arising and the passing away of feelings and thoughts. Find your relaxed meditation posture. Sitting erect, gently close your eyes and gently close your mouth. And holding yourself softly, gently, lovingly. Allow yourselves to settle into your rooms, settle onto your seats, settle into your bodies, and settle into your minds. Notice the sensation of breathing in your body. Become mindful of your inhalation and your exhalation, your in-breath and your out-breath. While remaining mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath, notice that feelings and thoughts arise and pass away. Notice the arising and the passing away of your breath in your body. When you find that you're distracted by feelings or thoughts, gently acknowledge the distraction and return mindfulness to your breathing. Relaxing your thoughts, remaining mindful of the arising and the passing away of your breath in your body. And we'll continue to meditate for 20 minutes, 
with callbacks every five minutes. Notice the arising and the passing away of feelings and thoughts. 
while remaining mindful of the arising and the passing away of your breath and your body.
Notice the arising and the passing away of feelings and thoughts while remaining mindful of the arising and the passing away of your breath and your body.
Notice the arising and the passing away of feelings and thoughts while remaining mindful of the arising and the passing away of your breath and your body. And we'll continue to meditate for five more minutes.
take a moment to notice the quality of your mind. Be at peace with your mind. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. So I think you've all noticed, but I just want to reiterate again how the guided meditations and the verbiage used relates directly to the jhanas and the four foundations of mindfulness. So the first instruction is to notice the sensation of breathing in your body, become mindful of your inhalation and your exhalation, your in-breath and your out-breath. That begins to establish that first level of jhana, being mindful of our breath, um, and also taking joy in the seclusion of our meditation practice. We have moved ourselves away from the entanglements in the world. We found a quiet place and we've connected with our breath. The next level of mindfulness, it's the verbiage is while remaining mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath, notice the feelings and thoughts arise away. Notice the arising and passing away of your breath in, this bo in your body. This relates to the second and third jhanas, as we talked about, and also the second and third levels of mindfulness. And the, the, um, the next instruction, when you find that you're distracted by feelings or thoughts, gently acknowledge the distraction and return mindfulness to your breathing. Again, relates to the understanding of the fluidity of deepening levels of jhana and the instructions of the fourth, the second and third foundations of mindfulness. And then the last... The last... Um, or the intermediate callbacks, notice the arising and passing away of feelings and thoughts while remaining mindful of the arising and passing away of your breath in your body. Again, is, is reinforcement during your meditation to simply come back to your breath, as we talked about, as, as Laura brought up earlier. That's such an important point. And then the last, the last instruction that I give, notice the quality of your mind, be at peace with your mind, and then is the last, when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. That relates, again, to the fourth jhana, that, that establishment of equanimity, and the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So what I'd like to do is to go around, and uh, I want to hear how your jhana practice is deepening just from these last two classes, if you find this helpful. If you're using the guided meditations, it's okay if you're not. That's We're here to talk about it. There's no judgment here. Uh, but, we, of course, we will all encourage you to do that. And if you notice the integration of the jhanas and the four foundations of mindfulness, so um, let's begin with Jane. Jane, how are you? Ladies first tonight. I know you love going first. <laughs> oh, sure. Right, let me see here. There we go. No, there um, you are. No, I use the guided meditations for like the first two years of my practice. I mean, I, you know, I used them faithfully. And then over time, I, I stopped. But it's funny, I, I still give myself the same directions. You know, if I, you know, I'll say, you know, um, acknowledge your thoughts, you know, I mean, let them pass away. And at the end, I'll ask myself, you know, notice the quality of your mind. So I think I kind of incorporated them into, you know, what I do. But they were very, I, very helpful in the beginning. Yeah. Thank you, Jane. I, I think I think you have. And if that's how it's working out for you, I would say just continue. And again, you don't need me to tell you that. You know from your own experience that your Dhamma practice is, is bearing great benefit to you. I would ask you that once in a while, maybe once a week or once a month, to just listen to the guided meditations again, just to kind of reinforce that those four foundations of mindfulness in that way. 
Um, but you know, I, I think I think you're practicing as we should practice. So I'll Thanks, do that. Jay. Thank you, Philippe. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, sir. Good to hear you. Good to see you. Good to good to be back. Good to be back. Yeah. Um, I think the greatest thing about that awareness of how the breath you know, rises and ceases, it's like a, it's a analogous to all nature of phenomenon. Yeah. You know, it's like, I keep reminding myself that, you know, not so much when I'm, when I'm in medit meditation or mind training, um, you know, if I've got something going on, if I'm getting triggered by samsara, I go, it's just like the breath fill. It will arise and then it will cease. It's so pragmatic, like the beauty of the early Buddhist text is so simple. The instructions, you know, like you were talking about before, you reinforce that a lot, John, is I hear that, you know, the Vajrayana and the Mahayana and the, especially what, you know, I don't want to talk about, I'm just putting, putting it down, but it's convoluted and distorted and I, I can't elucidate the message. But the early, the early suttas are just, okay, do this, and that happens. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's so simple. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love the early stuff. It's so pragmatic. And you're pointing to the, to the fluidity of our breath, which is a metaphor but the most practical experience of life because it flows. As yeah. long as our breath is flowing, life is flowing. And our breath is our yeah. connection to that life. And this brilliant man 2,600 years ago figured out that simple truth. So, thank you, my friend. I think, no I, worries. Thank you. No, please, complete. I think, too, we're talking about the, you know, when we're in that mindfulness, I think that second stage you were talking about how being aware of how, our, you know, the six, sense, six senses and the consciousness you know, grasps and tries to find itself in that, you know, that step between consciousness and reality, you know, I think that's almost like dependent origination almost as well. You know, yeah. how I use the sixth sense base and then I get contact and then hug a reach and I grasp and I cling and then, yeah, I end up doing It's so, so it's all intricate, you know, which is awesome. Yeah. I love it. And doing it that way, you realise those the connections that you're supposed to make and that then you're really understanding the nuance of the Dhamma itself. Now, uh, you weren't here at our first class for this structured study. Oh, and so I asked everyone, who, it, it, they, the talk is up too, so you can listen to it, but I've asked everyone mm -hmm. if they, if they're studying along with us and you can come to classes without considering yourself, but if you're studying along with, with us to use the guided meditations from the website during your meditation okay. period and to meditate twice okay. a day, um, as often as you can. So I hope you're doing that with us. It's okay if you're not. But, um, yeah, no, no. I read, I read some of the stuff that's online last night before this one. The stuff you posted, I read some of that. But I'll good. definitely yeah, the, the, the guided stuff. Yeah. Great. Yeah, the instructions for how to how to practice along with us are in each email now every week too. So yeah. I'm glad you joined us again. It's always a pleasure, my friend, from down under. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Jeff, how are you tonight? Well, John, thank you. Um, yeah, my, my practice has changed a lot in a year. When I when I first started a year ago and when you were starting the truth of happiness, I had a lot of free time, a lot of relaxed time. 
and it I fell into meditation so easily. Um, this year has been a different experience. It's much more stressful and structured. So what I what I found has been most helpful for me is to actually put uh, icons on all the devices that I have to be plugged into all the time, where in order to get to any of the other apps, I have to go through a guided meditation. Huh, and that, that reminds me then, right, to disconnect and concentrate and not get distracted and carried away with all the other stuff. And that, wow. that's helped me a lot. That's some great advice. Is it you have an iPhone you do that on, or is it like yeah, Android? An iPhone, and and oh. the, the guided meditations can be downloaded as MP3s, and then they come up on an yeah. icon. Yeah, I was you just can, telling everybody that you don't always have to go back to the website. You can just download them and put them in one folder, like like you said, and it'll be as an icon, and you can pick any one you want. And it's the it's the greatest way to practice, and you'll awaken within two weeks if you do that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jeff. Adam, how are you doing? I'm How's doing your, good. your burgeoning I, practice going? Um, it's going pretty good. I'm still learning, but um, I've been, I'm not gonna lie. I've been slacking on um, meditating, so I, I just got to get a schedule and do it right, you know. Yeah, and that's what we hear about to encourage you to just to do it, do it right, if you will, because you'll yeah. you're the one that's going to be gaining the benefit of twice a day meditations. And again, I, like we talked about, it's not so much the length of time, but it's two meditations twice a day. And if that's just for five minutes twice a day for a couple of weeks or even a couple of months, that's great. You'll have much more benefit. All of us will have much more benefit from, from a structured everyday practice, no matter how short those sessions are, rather than thinking you have to meditate for 30 minutes or an hour. Um, most people can't start that way and will soon give up if you try. So length of time isn't, isn't as important as as consistency so thanks adam no problem uh deborah how are you tonight if you'd like to comment you don't have to but we always love to hear from you <laughs> well <laughs> <laughs> i had a particularly oh no turn that on. <laughs> i had a particularly um interesting day at work today but I chose a new path today, which was stay in the moment. So at the end of my day, uh, where I work, I felt pretty good about the outcome. Wow. So that's, uh, you're incorporating an important part of practice. So good for you. Just being present for life as life occurs. Right. Thanks, Just Deborah. Whatever. But whatever was in front of me at that moment, totally focused, and that was really? it. Good for you. I, I'm just curious. Maybe if you'd rather I didn't ask you these questions, send me a text and say stop. Um, I, are you? I'll talk to you about this outside of class. <laughs> no, you can ask. You, you can ask. It's okay. Uh, do you do you meditate and do you meditate daily? Now you know. Now you know. Uh, I do not meditate on a daily basis. And I know I'm supposed to meditate twice a day. She's rolling. <laughs> no, I, I would say, Deborah, don't even look at it that way that you're supposed to, meaning because I said so, but do it because you recognize the benefit of doing so. 
And again, yeah. I would encourage you, um, as I teach all beginners, if I mean, you're not quite a beginner, but you're beginning a meditation practice is to begin with five minutes twice a day and make that make that enough and be happy with that. And I think you'll notice some immediate benefits. And it's okay if you don't. I won't yell at you. I never have. <laughs> Thanks, Deborah. Donna, teacher Brian. Hi, Jen. How are everybody? Um, yeah, I don't know where to start tonight. There's a lot. Um, <laughs> I would say that over the course of the past nearly two years of being here with you and, and doing this, um, my mind has grown much calmer. Um, I can I can notice the thoughts and the feelings arising and passing away with the breath and the body arising and passing away. Um, the quality of mind has become empty of the defilements more often than not. That's the way and put it. There's a there was a line in week two that you wrote that says the mind becomes the vehicle for perception. Yes. Yes. Where now I'm I am out on the frontier of my senses just feeling what's ever coming in contact with the sense base, not judging it, not preferring it to be different. And that that really feels like the fourth level of jhana and the fourth foundation of mindfulness where that's that reference point to what's occurring yeah or there's there's no i in that anymore um and of course that that arises and passes away too and it's as david said it's it's fluid it's not there's no permanency in any of that um so i'm i'm i continue to be thankful for this practice and it's just done wonders for my life yeah. um thank you brian you, you always describe practice so eloquently and really what you're describing and referencing that that beautiful line that i wrote uh, mindfulness then becomes a vehicle uh, for perception is really almost transcending or at least separating the five clinging aggregates and you're transcending yeah. your reaction to feelings and because of that your perception doesn't lead to a new fabrication Right. And you're just going into that, to the fifth aggregate, if you will, right. which is really just our human existence right. is referenced by the fifth aggregate. And so when mindfulness is established to that fine level of acuity, that's the result. It's just a common, peaceful mind. And thank you for placing it so so eloquently. Let's see if Dhamma teacher Tom can do as well. Is, Tom, how are you tonight? Uh, I'm afraid I can't. I've been... Uh... <laughs> you always teach eloquently in your own way. We all do. Yeah. No, I've actually I've got my camera off. I've got a bit of a headache, so I'm just going to take I'm I'm listening in um, and sort of resting up in in uh, at the same time. So I'll, I'll just take noble silence today. But thank, thank you, you so much for jo joining us, Donna Teacher Tom. And I promise that that headache is impermanent. <laughs> Laura, how are you tonight? Much better than I was. Yeah, that second sit uh, this today from me uh, earlier was a thirty-minute one, but um i'm just realizing how important that second sit is you know you always stress how important it is to get to and yeah and it really does solidify you know what you learn and it's self-encouraging and it's you know like some of the others they're so honest in admitting you know oh i don't meditate because i mean all last semester i think there was a point where 
I was only meditating when I came to class, but then what helped me this semester is linking the meditation with, um, you know, it's just become so habitual these past two months. Um, every time I make a cup of tea, then I drink some tea and then I go sit. Every time before I start my homework, I meditate first and then I, you know, do it. Whereas before, I don't, that's really helped me. That's been like a game changer for me. And then as far as what's happening internally in my um, thinking, it's just, it's amazing how profound this practice is because there are moments where, like Brian described so well, where you do feel like you're just a reference point to what's occurring. You know, when I was on the cushion, it was just, you know, that calm and equanimity. And then a thought might come up. But what's great about this practice is that it's not a practice of no mind or beginner's mind or, you know, all these different other Buddhist interpretations. It's yeah. like, no, we we are humans and we're sensitive and we have these thoughts that are natural and they arise. And then it, when you're done, you know, that's why the instructions are so great because now I'm starting to really, okay, gently acknowledge, like, it's so important to acknowledge those thoughts, not just try to, you know, escape from them. Yeah. And then return mindfulness to your breathing, but then off the cushion, then you're able, like every time now, or not every time, but when you have an interaction with someone, like an outward interaction or external interaction, there's that simultaneous kind of internal or inward observance of, Okay, I'm interacting with John, what's, you know, or someone else or my family, whatever. What's going on inward with me? Like, rather know, than reacting. reacting. Right. Yeah. And like, so I feel like I can observe there's that space. Like, Nina talks about it a lot, like cultivating that space yeah. to observe what's happening, what's happening inwardly, you know, what's going on with me as opposed to just you know, focusing on just the external world. So it's, I don't know, it's just, yeah. I'm so glad we're doing this course because it's so helpful. Yeah, it is. And, and uh, I'm so glad you're integrating that second that second set. Uh, and I'm glad that we're all talking about it. I, I do kind of take it for, when I find out that you're not sitting, like some of you aren't sitting twice a day, I do have pictures of all of you and I draw like mustaches <laughs> or blacking out. I'm shooting darts at <laughs> All right, it's so good that we you get to laugh here a lot too. It's yeah. one thing I didn't know. I noticed in other sanghas they were always so serious and pious, and you know what we're doing is we're really dealing with the absurdity of our own human minds. Yeah. And we're, and we should take that seriously, but also take it lightly and treat ourselves gently, because that's the key. The, the key to the whole dharma is gentleness, fluidity. Now, you, as you're describing, you simply notice what you're doing that is not in accordance with the eightfold path. And you let it go. We don't judge ourselves harshly in any way. And then so doing self-loathing then slips away. We're not doing something wrong or the fact that we need to practice the Dhamma means there's something lacking. It simply means we don't understand the most important thing of human life, the first noble truth. Mm -hmm. We get to figure it out this way. So thank you. Um, I didn't mean I meant I didn't mean to not turn the camera on. You just remember people forgot how more I look here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Wrong. Dharma teacher wrong. Um, I don't have much really. I'm really glad to be back in the Church of the Happiness course. For the tenth time, probably. Um, And because it's still relevant. Isn't that amazing? Even in my practice, which has been back and forth a number of times, but it. Every time I read a chapter, it's still relevant. It's, it's uh, as I said before, it's well written. <clears throat> I've worn out highlighters. <laughs> um, and uh, just my jhana practice is it's still evolving. It's still changing. It's still getting deeper. Uh, and sometimes it's frustrating, and sometimes it's not. But uh, now that I've really gotten the, the habits established, um, it's the, the effects and, and the benefits are are, are there. Mm-hmm. I don't have to. I, I don't have to question why. Because you know the results. You know the, the results are in. The results are in. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. You reminded me of something. Years ago, I got a call from a new student. Um, and they were still kind of agitated. And I can just hear it in their voice. And they wanted to know why did the Buddha keep meditating after he awakened? And to some people, that would sound like a reasonable question. Why would a man who awakened need to meditate? And of course, he didn't. And he didn't need to meditate for many years before that. He chose to because he recognized the benefits and the refuge of just sitting quietly within his own mind. And so, of course, he continued to meditate for 45 more years past his awakening. But his teachings never changed. Some of them you can glean maybe a different or deepening understanding of concentration. But really what he did is what we do here. He learned from his students how to present the Dhamma in a nuanced way. So the Buddha continued to learn that entire 45 years of his life, and it's what gave his life great meaning and purpose, like it's doing to ours. The Dhamma worked exactly as it does for us, as it does did for Siddhartha Gautama, in exactly the same way. We're doing the same thing he did, the same thing he taught, and as Ram said, it's just as relevant today as it was 2,600 years ago, because it's not dealing with current events, but it, you could say it's dealing with the cause of all current events, because nothing has changed in our human behavior that I can notice through knowing a lot about history and recognizing things in 2,600 years. We're still acting in the same way towards each other. And that's not a, a condemnation of humanity. It's just a, an acknowledgement that we haven't, as a, as a species, as, a human, as human beings, we still have a rooted in ignorance of these four simple truths. But we're learning as a Sangha those four truths, and so recognizing and abandoning the, our inner cause of stress, which is ignorance of the four noble truths. Rob? Just one thing I wanted to say, and in reference to that question from, from the student, is that whenever you see in, in one of the suttas, especially when he leaves somebody else uh, to teach, it says, and Buddha left for the days of binding. Yep. That was it. Yep. Which means somewhere, finds a tree, yep. and he, he just sat there quietly. 
and he wasn't concerned about what was going in the sangha because he wasn't there in the sangha. It wasn't because he knew I got everything covered. He simply wasn't there. He's always here. Thanks, Ron. Dharma teacher Kevin. Uh, I'm using the recording. Thank you. And uh, standing. Continuing to sit twice today, or sit since we've been sort of uh, refurbishing this. And I think I really appreciate what Laura said about noticing when we have to quiet our minds during our practice and return back to the sensation of breathing, but also noticing when it's flowing, like David said, and your breath is just arising and passing away and, and noticing both of them. And that's part of the practice. And that's sort of, as we're saying, we're, we're noticing our practice bearing fruit. And through your recordings have helped me notice that, that, you know, it's okay to not, to, to not have thoughts occurring and to just have breathing occurring and, and, you know, thoughts will occur, but then they dissipate. That's the word disappear, that they, they become less of an influence, yeah. ideally through your sit. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't also. So it's it's really helpful, uh, all of your contributions and, and sort of, as Rob said, this yearly sort of, using your metaphor in the, in the box, you know, take, you know, rearranging the four, you know, jewels, you know, picking them up and seeing the different shine of the light on each of them to, to follow that. So um, really cool. Thanks for the recordings. And I need help downloading them. I will, I will admit <laughs> my uh, technological uh, weaknesses there, but I'll figure it out. Yeah, Thank it you. Is Thank you. It is easy to do, but if anybody has difficulties, yeah. let me know and I can help you. But All right. um, yeah, please, that's the best way to do it. Um, you reminded me of something that, you know, the, the, the uh, Nagajana, one of the moderate influencers, even though sometimes he's not referenced as that, used to talk about Dhamma practice was developing the know nothing mind. I think some of you have probably heard that. Excuse me. And that again speaks to that idea of nothingness or elimination of thought. And that's only because people did not like their thoughts. They, were, they noticed them as distracting. So they thought that the resolution was just to get rid of them and to develop some kind of quality of nothingness or emptiness. And that is why I say that most Dhamma practice and most people are rooted in self-loathing. We, we're actually fighting against ourselves to not have a thought instead of recognizing it's the thought that's giving me stress. So let me understand that instead of eliminating it. And that is the, the major, the, the significant difference between what the Buddha taught and I think everyone else. I've yet to discover somebody who taught something like that. Right. That's sort of the difference between no, that's the difference between no thought and, and calm. You know? Yes. We're, we're talking about calm. And calm, if, if you know, you, you, you could mistake it for no thought, but yep. it's, it's, you know, it's extended periods of calm, but they, they are impermanent also. Yeah, calm is really not taking whatever thought is flowing in my mind in any personal way. Mm -hmm. And we, then we fall into that fluidity of our, our thoughts are always flowing from life to death. It's only after death that we don't have that flow of thoughts. And so why, be, why care about that? You know, it, it, we're not going to experience it as far as our human life is concerned. So what is most important in our life? Most important is to have control of our minds, isn't it? To be present for this moment as soon as we can do it. So it would be great if human beings were born with this kind of calm and understanding and concentration, but we're simply not. And that's something else that the Buddha noticed. Birth, sickness, aging, and death, they're all contributory 
to either ignorance or awakening. What are we doing in this moment? What are we, what are we doing between birth, aging, and death in between that time? What's the quality? Are we practicing wise restraint through concentration? Or are we living up? Me, am I living up to the potential of this moment? And how can I best do so? Think about that. With the capabilities or the limitations that I might have as a human being, how can I most successfully live in this moment? By being present for it without the need for it to be any different. And I think that makes sense to everyone, doesn't it? Without the need for me to alter what's occurring or to change the way that I am. Because I did that for many years and I would bet all of you have done it in one way or another. And now we found a way to not have to do that, to simply be present with what's occurring in our life. Why? Because it's my life. And I deserve it for myself. I deserve to give myself this present moment instead of stop, instead of grasping after something that is not me, not mine, not what I am. Thank you, Kevin. So I'm the teacher there. There are no advanced practitioners. Yes, thank you. That each year we go through this course with fresh eyes and fresh ears. And I look upon this as if the first time I did it. And I don't consider myself advanced. I don't consider myself special. These teachings are so simple, so clean. And take advantage of this course. Uh, write down your thoughts at the end of the chapters. Please. Uh, I haven't done it each time, but the time I did do it and submitted it to John was probably the most fulfilling. And there's something we said, putting your thoughts down on paper. Uh, my practice is well established, but I decided to start using the guided meditations again. I basically kind of like what Jane did. First couple of years I used it a lot, and then I felt I had incorporated enough of that mindfulness and the ability to do it without, but uh, you know, instead of twice a week, I'm doing it four times, 14 times a week. It's it's not a heavy burden to to do that, and it's not a crutch. It's just a reinforcement of these simple teachings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's what we're gaining is understanding. What we're gaining is control. So. That's as advanced as it can be. So, thank you. Thank you for saying that, David. It's something I've been thinking about, too. Because, um, every now and then I would get a question, even from some of our Sangha members, about you know, advanced practices. And there, are, there aren't any. There is just this eightfold path. Of course, it, it, we, we deepen our understanding if we practice it correctly. And so we're advancing in understanding. But this practice that we teach here in this Sangha, through my books, through the website, is the practice. And there's nothing beyond it. Because the, how could there be anything beyond this present moment? Sometimes I, I, class, I describe it this way, that when we're present in this moment is the only time that we're standing on the edge of eternity. 
Think about that. How else would we know? This present moment is the edge of eternity. It's not somehow living forever because then there's no living, is there? But this is the this is the the first and last moment of my life. I am on the edge of eternity. I'm living within eternity in this moment. And it's right here and right now. It's not what I'm going to get in the next moment. There is no greater knowledge than understanding stress and living with a calm and peaceful mind. And that's what we're developing here. Um, and it, it really is remarkable um, how we are all developing it in, the, in this way. So I'm, I'm glad to be associated with this Sangha. And thank you for letting me be part of your Sangha. Um, any other questions about tonight's class or what we're doing? So we started with Jhana last week. This week was the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Jen is teaching Saturday on the Four Noble Truths. So I think you can see the flow of the book and why it's presented in this way. So we've learned how to concentrate our mind. We've learned how to do it even deeper with the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And now we're going to learn what to apply it towards, which is Four Noble Truths. So again, thank you all for joining me tonight. Um, anybody who needs to catch up, please catch up with the with the talks. I'll post them as quickly as I can after class. Um, I didn't get to, to um, Saturday's class. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. I didn't get to posting Saturday's class. I realized I didn't do it intentionally until um, late Tuesday night, uh, because honestly, um, I just kind of uh, I did a kind of a mini retreat um, from Saturday afternoon through uh, Tuesday evening, and then I realized I didn't get the email out. So I apologize for getting it out a little bit late. Um, but you can know as you go through the course that I post the, the talks as quick as quickly as I can. But the next week class is always following on, on our schedule. So Four Noble Truths is up next. Please do your homework, and I'll post tonight's talk um, as quickly as I can. I think it's going to be tonight, but definitely tomorrow. We'll finish with meta as we always do. And again, sometimes I describe it like this, sometimes I just go in it, but this is really the Buddhist teaching on, on how an awakened human being will be dealing with the natural stresses of life when they occur. And the Buddha teaches in the sutta, his words, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, I'm sorry. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. 
radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, and being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class. Please excuse my little distraction there in the middle. I just thought of something that occurred recently. Um, and that's all I need to say about that. See you at the next class. Thank Thanks, you, John. Thanks, John. Bye. Thanks, man. Good night. Bye, John. See you, Adam. See you, Jeff. See you, Jane. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.